Well, this month, our More Like Jesus series, oh, the children are going to be dismissed for children's worship. Let's do that now. Follow the lady with the banner. As I was saying, this month in our More Like Christ series, we are looking at the idea of uh, a work and rest. As a follower of Jesus, we need to understand what he calls us to as those who are called to carry out the creation mandate to dress, till, and keep his creation. And so in these next weeks, we'll be looking at how Christians ought to think about their work, and then we'll get into rest issues as well. But before we do that, I want to address a topic that many of us may overlook when we think about God. We sometimes think that God is to be understood in what I call deistic terms. The deists long ago had the idea that God, God in the supreme power of his greatness created the world and all the planets and stars and he organized it in such a way that it would just sort of run by itself and so he wound it up and he flung it off into space and then God is the absent God from this world he does not intervene he does not act in any way toward those whom he has created and that idea of course is supremely wrong I would like to show you that what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 17, after he healed the lame man at Bethsaida, he said to them, my father is always at work, and I am also working. The father and the son are at work. We have to remind ourselves of that. So we think about that a little bit. We have to ask, what is God doing or what has he been doing and what will he do as we come to the end of this world's history? So let me, let me attempt something that my seminary professors told me I ought never to do. <laughs> and I'm a, a bit of a rebel. They said you should never try to preach the whole Bible in one sermon. Well, here we go. The text this morning is Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. There is a theme in the, in the text of the Bible that we ought to understand, a thematic thread that I'd like to pull through the entire Bible. And I think it's helpful to trace it. I call it homecoming. Homecoming. Home is the place where, as Robert Frost said so well, it's the place where when you go there, they have to take you in. It's the place where you can always know that you are accepted and welcomed, no matter how long you've been away, no matter how prodigal you have been with your life. Home is the place where you can go and know that you will be loved. It's a place where your needs are to be met. It's a place where your soul is satisfied. And I propose to you this morning that what God is doing is working through history to take you and me home again. The work of God is his homework. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
All the way through the days of creation, God was working to make this place that we call home, our earth. It was a, a place that God had especially prepared for the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve. When God breathed life into Adam and Eve on the sixth day, he had already prepared for them that place where he wanted them to live and to thrive. That was the Garden of Eden. And so when Adam and Eve came to that garden, they had everything they needed. And God walked with them, we're told, in the cool of the evening. They were home. But this beautiful story and the unity between God and nature and God and man was not to last. Because somewhere in the storyline, Adam and Eve fell to the lie of Satan and they started imagining that defying God in this just one way of eating from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil would somehow make them equal with God. This is Satan's biggest lie yet today. And so they ate from the tree and that disrupted their entire lives. The world and ours is broken because of it. And God, knowing the effects of their rebellion, said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the very worst thing that could have happened as a result of Adam and Eve eating from that one tree was that they would have eaten from the second tree, the tree of life, because that would have given them eternity, an eternity without the cleansing that was necessary, eternity in sin and brokenness and evil. It would have been an eternal bondage to sin. So we read that God banished them from the garden and to garden to work the ground from which he had taken them. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So now understand this. Now, it wasn't just that God expelled them from the garden, but that at the gate of the garden, on the east gate of the garden, God established cherubim. You know what cherubim are. Those are angels. And the angels had a flaming sword. And they were to guard the gate so that Adam and Eve could not re-enter the garden and eat of the tree of life and so be condemned to eternal life of misery. And so begins the story of our world. What God created to be good in every way now carries the mark of brokenness and creation itself groans under the weight of sin and because of the contamination of sin that we humans also live as homeless aliens wandering in the world, longing for home. And explains our restlessness, doesn't it? A sense of frustration when people have with life itself, even in these good days. We have lost paradise. We know that intuitively. And yet God does not abandon his people, doesn't abandon his creation or his creatures. Even as the curse of sin was pronounced upon Adam and Eve, God assured them that he was working to bring about justice to his people. And to Satan then, God said these words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the 
covenant promise that God was making already at the very beginning of human history. And Adam and Eve must have understood that promise as being someone who is going to come after them, who is going to be their redeemer, their savior, one who is going to crush the power of Satan. And we know, we know that as soon as Eve had her firstborn son, Cain, she said, ah, God has given me a man, indicating that he, she really believed that this was going to be the one, her own offspring, who was going to crush the head of the serpent. But it was not to be so, because Cain was not the savior. He was a murderer. He killed his own brother. And once again, God was working to restrain the power of evil in the world. And Cain was sent out to be a restless wanderer on the earth, even farther away from home. But sin had taken a root on all the people. All God's creation now have been broken. And just a few generations later, a man by the name of Lamech was actually a murderer, and he's recorded as bragging to his family members about having killed someone for having injured him. Here is what he says. Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Here's a guy who is so evil in his intention that he's bragging about having killed a person. Our biblical story shows us that the defeat of Satan and the reconciliation of God's people is not, not going to come easily. Sin had a stranglehold on God's good world and his people. And the story of Genesis tells us that not long after that, it says that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and their thoughts were only evil all the time. You can't get much worse than that. And God saw all that was happening and it grieved him that he had made man, the Bible says. So sin had captivated our world and sent us into a homelessness that seemed impossible to repair. So God hit the restart button. He sent the flood. But even the most righteous man living on the earth at the time, Noah, was still so corrupted, still wore the marks of sin in his own life that evil was passed on from the next generation so quickly, even after coming off the ark. And years and years later, we read of people who intended to build a city. They had a plan. They were going to make themselves a home. They said to themselves, let's make ourselves a city, and that will make us a name for ourselves. And so they were going to build a tower that reached up to the heavens. And God understood that man was not ready to live in a city. This was going to cause even more evil. And so God confused the language, and he sent them off into distances, separating people and cultures. It's going to take serious work, you see, for God to do this reclamation project. Otherwise, there would be no homecoming at all. So God in his wisdom, and here's another switch, you see. God in his wisdom and good timing began a new thing. He chose out of all the peoples of the world two people who were not even followers of God by all standards, Abraham and Sarah. And he said to those, that couple, he said, I will make you a blessing. He called him to do something that might seem so strange. 
He called them to leave their home and move to a place that God said, I will show you what I will give you. And then to these folks, God said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the great covenant of grace. And Abraham accepted the promise of God, not knowing where he was going, not knowing what this homeland that God was going to give to him was like, but trusting that God was going to be the one who would work on his behalf. And that relationship, as I said, is called the covenant of grace. And even though Abraham and Sarah did not keep their side of the promises perfectly, yet God did. And that is the way by which this covenant is enacted. It wasn't on the basis of their perfect obedience, but on the basis of their faith, their trust in God. The covenant is based yet today in that same way. Not so much on our perfect obedience, but our trusting that God will do what he said he would. And so the writer to the Hebrews, many years later, could say of Abraham, he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. A city with foundations. Home. So over these next generations, you see, God did bless and preserve the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord brought his chosen people out of bondage, out of Egypt. He brought them out into the wilderness, out to the Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God did two things that I think are important. First of all, he gave them the covenant regulations. These are the commandments that God gave to his people Israel, the Ten Commandments. But the second thing God gave to Israel was the tabernacle and all of the sacrificial orders that went with it. Now, this is amazing to me when you think about it. What God was doing in that place, in a wilderness place that is full of rocks and dust and brambles and hardly any life existence at all, God was saying to, to, to Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a garden. This garden is supposed to be a place of great beauty. It was not a garden that had flowers that were natural, but God said, I want you to weave into the tapestry along the walls of this, of this tabernacle. I want you to weave into that uh, all kinds of beautiful flowers. I want you to weave into them palm trees. I want you to have in there the kind of reminders that there is a garden somewhere, and this is a reminder of it. A portable garden, a place of exquisite beauty, in the middle of a wilderness. And the Hebrews 8 verse 5 puts it, there were to be priests and Levites who were to be there. They were to care for the caretakers of the garden and they were to serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Now notice, notice what God gave to Moses was a blueprint. A tabernacle blueprint that he had already designed in heaven. This was a scale model of what God had in mind already working out from history and eternity past. Of course, for all its beauty and ornate richness, it was never intended to be just a thing of beauty, 
but a reminder, a visual that God had promised that someday they would go back to a garden. So he instructed Moses to have the fabric that was weaved into the sanctuary, pomegranates and flowers and palms. And you ask, what, was, what is all that about? And this is what God told Moses. Make a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain, and the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Again, God gave David the same instructions for building the more permanent temple in Jerusalem. The instructions were the same. 1 Kings chapter 6, the inside of the temple was carved, cedar carved with gourds and open flowers. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Oh, we understand the, the garden, but the cherubim? Why the cherubim guarding the Holy of Holies? Well, once again, it was a reminder to them that there is an entrance into the garden. There is an entrance you can go through, but you will have to go under the sword of the cherubim in order to enter into it. And who is capable of entering into that holy place? No one, no human being. For anyone to enter, they must also go under God's judgment against sin. So by this time in history, you have to realize that God's work of bringing us, his people, to bring us to the garden home is going to take some masterful work, more than any of us could make or find a way on our own, because someone has to go under the sword for us. But, But the promise is there, and the future is continually reminding us, yes, there is a home, and God is at work. Over time, however, the people grew quite comfortable with their imageries. They grew comfortable with their temple in Jerusalem. They liked to remind themselves that we of all the people of the world have God with us because this is his home. And because the temple, the temple, the temple is in the holy place in Jerusalem, we have the assurance that nothing can go wrong. And so they lived in that kind of self-satisfactory idea that this was all the home there is. And yet in the midst of all of that, they were not worshiping God as they ought. They were not treating people with justice and equity. There was all kinds of evil going on right under the, right under the surface of things that were happening inside the temple itself. And we began to realize that all of this was something that had to change in order for God's work to continue so that even while they were profaning God's holy temple, God was once again at work. And this time, the work was stern discipline. He used the Babylonians to breach the walls of the city of Jerusalem, to tear down the walls of the, of the temple, to destroy the holy place and all of its articles. And he led those people out into captivity for 70 years as his form of discipline There was no holy city anymore. And so now they come to a place in the biblical storyline where God's people were asking important questions about this discipline. 
They first of all asked the question, what? Is God not able to save us from the Babylonians? Or did God abandon us and break his promise to us, his covenant? Is God not no longer interested in a future with us? And then they finally asked the, the right question. And the question was, is it? Is it possible because we have sinned against the holy God? And once again, God shows that he is at work giving them the answers to what they need. The prophets that God raised up during this time of captivity included those named uh, Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel had visions that God gave him, several visions. The first vision, of course, was the sign of his God's discipline. The first vision that Ezekiel was able to look down over the city of Jerusalem and especially the temple itself, and he saw the cherubim. He saw the Shekinah glory of God move up and away from the Holy of Holies, the temple itself. Then the text says, Ezekiel 11, then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the temples of the mountains east of it. And here God is saying, do you see what's happening, people? I am no longer living in my holy temple. Because of your iniquity, I'm withdrawing myself from you and I'm living apart now. So God, in effect, removes his presence from his people, saying, I cannot, I will not dwell with this wicked people. So for 70 years, 70 years of captivity, 70 years of homelessness, God was working in their lives. They acknowledged their sin. They repented. They turned and began once again living in a right relationship with God so that God could bless them. The discipline worked. And God heard their pleas for mercy. And once again, God gave the prophet Ezekiel a second vision. And this found in Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Wow. What this means is that God was promising his people that there's going to be a return. There's going to be a return of his blessing on the land and upon his people. The glory of the Lord will once again fill the temple. But that's not all. God says more. In Ezekiel chapter 47, the prophet is shown a vision of an amazing river. The river that he sees begins to flow out of the main altar in the, the temple that God is showing Ezekiel that will be rebuilt. It flows out like a little trickle of water, meaningless trickle. It goes out to the eastern side of the, of the temple and out over the threshold and falls down over the threshold of the temple and begins to fall down into the, into the Kidron Valley. But the amazing thing about this river is that we would expect a, a little trickle to be swallowed up by the dry and parched earth of that land. But what Ezekiel begins to realize is that this river, instead of growing smaller, gets deeper and wider as it goes. 
And he measures it out as you read it in Ezekiel chapter 47. And he finds that this river is, is a never-growing river. This is, this is no ordinary act of God. This is a supernatural event that God is doing. And this river begins to flow down all the way down into the Jordan River Valley. And it says in the, in the text then, that as the river begins to enter the Dead Sea, he realizes that there is a that there is a, a great change. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live the, wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this river flows and makes the salt water fresh so the river flows, where the river flows, everything will live. In the most dead place in the entire world, yet today, God is saying to Ezekiel, I'm going to make a river of life that flows out of the holy temple, down into the Jordan, over into the Dead Sea, and it's going to come to life. And it'll be full of fish, and fishermen are going to be fishing alongside the shores. It's a place of life, not death. And there are trees alongside of the, of the river, trees which he says will bear fruit in its, every month. And we ask, well, what is God exactly showing Ezekiel? What exactly is he trying to point to? Is this just all some sort of wishy-washy hopefulness? I think God is saying something very simple. I want you to remember paradise. I want you to remember that there is a homecoming. Remember your garden home. And I'm preparing this for you. It's not something that the people of Israel or you and I can do. It's only something that God can make happen. But it's a reminder that God is still at work. He's still working. And there's a time and a place when all of this will come to be. And the last verse of the book of Ezekiel says this. And the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. Just like in the Garden of Eden, when God came and walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, this place will be the place where God says, I will be with you. Homecoming. Time has passed. And 400 years from the last prophecy of Malachi until the following, the coming of Jesus, they called the, are called the silent years. And even during those years, God was still at work, moving history forward, preparing people, raising up governments, bringing others down, and raising up a person who was going to be ready to receive, although there were only a few, only a few who were waiting for the Messiah to come. I think those folks living in those years who were waiting still had heard and remembered the prophecy of Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has dawned. And they must have wondered, what are we to expect from all of this? The Shekinah cloud, this pillar of fire and cloud that covers the whole temple when it enters. Is this going to be what happens now in the new Jerusalem? Will we see a repeat of the dedication of Solomon's temple or the tabernacle? But whatever the people expected from Isaiah, we understand that by the time this light promise was fulfilled, as I say, there were only a few people, old Simeon and Anna, who were waiting in the temple for the light to appear. 
And yet God was doing his work. And John, the gospel writer John, saw and understood what God was working at when he begins his gospel saying, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The light of the world has come into a sin-darkened place and God was doing his best personal work yet. Jesus healed the sick, fed the hungry, opened the eyes of the blind, set people who were captives free as a way of pointing to the coming of this great garden event, home. But more than that, more than all of that, Jesus in his sufferings, we've come to understand Jesus had to personally himself go under the sword of the cherubim to achieve justice for us. The perfect Lamb of God had to undergo the flaming sword of God's anger against sin so that we might be saved. And you remember when his work was finished, you remember what happened in the temple when he said, it is finished, the curtain that separated the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom. The cherubim were no longer needed. We could enter into the holy place. The work was done. And so Isaiah 53 says, surely, surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And here's what God was carrying out, the finest work of his time. So he loved the world so much. He loved you and me so much that he went under the curse, the sword of the, of the cherubim. And on the day in which he died, he said to the repentant thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, a garden home promised to this thief. And just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he puts it this way, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. And then we come to the final book of the, uh, of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. God gives us Christians something to think about. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of, ye of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of lamp nor the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What does this mean for us? I think two things. First of all, don't ever forget home. Don't ever forget what the longing of your spirit really cries out for in the dark of night, 
in the midst of your pain. Home is what God wants you to remember in the middle of all of that. There is a home, a garden city that God is preparing for us so that when we're discouraged, when life gets down, we can be assured that life, this life, is not all there is. Keep in mind that the best is yet to come. And we remember that God who worked to create this world has worked to redeem it and reclaim it as his own. And he's always at work. Every day, God is at work. He gives his blessings. And he brings his disciplines into our lives because he loves us and he wants to prepare us for our garden home. And Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works for us. He will not fail to do his work because he who began the good work will bring it to completion. That's his promise. And we live and die by that promise. Would you pray with me now? Lord, we... We believe your word is so clear to us as we draw the lines through history to recognize that all the way through the story of our created world and history of itself, you have been at work to create and renew your world and your people like us. God, we pray that as you move in history, as you are calling more and more people to faith, that you will use us as your, your co-workers to realize that this is the purpose for which you have given us life as well so that we might not just accept the promise, but that we might live it out in working and serving and resting in the comforts of your promise. So go with us, Lord, and guide us, we pray, through Jesus. Your faithfulness is great. And God's people say... Amen.